Thanks for listening to the Pulpit Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham. I am the teaching pastor at King's Cross Church in Bradenton, Florida. And it's been a minute. It's actually been a few months since my last episode that I uploaded. And there's been a few reasons for that. It's been a a very busy season for me and my family, uh, just wrapping up the conclusion of the spring semester for me at Western Seminary. Uh, I really have enjoyed my time there for the last three years, and I just graduated. Uh, Even though it's a little bit odd, I have one more semester in the summer to complete and then be completely done. So it feels a little bit odd saying I graduated and I'm complete (laughs) when I still have one more class to take. But that's how it works. You, You have one commencement per calendar year. And so had that happening. We had Easter. Uh, we had some family illness. We had a lot of travel. My wife and I spent our anniversary this year, 23 years of marriage, which is incredible and odd. I don't know how the time has flown by, but if you marry your best friend, then that's maybe one reason. But it also felt like we got married when we were 10. How, how have we been married 23 years? But we spent some time in Nashville which was really just relaxing. And it dawned on us, we had never, up until that, that point, 23 years in, so maybe a little bit overdue. <laughs> Might want to replace the word maybe. Definitely overdue. But we have never, in 23 years, flown anywhere just to spend time together outside of the context of church or ministry. So that sort of honestly convicted me a little bit. Like, wow, you need to do some more trips with your wife. Um, but we, we would get creative. We were, we've always been a little bit uh, just not paycheck to paycheck, but you know, we're not living high in the hog as people in ministry, but we would always tack on trips to the best of our ability to, um, to ministry trips. So if we're, if we're meeting up with pastors in New York, well, Hey, let's stay an extra day and let's enjoy New York. Or if we're in California, let's Let's get there early and we'll spend the weekend before the conference or whatever. So this was really cool to, to take the time and get away without any um, any ministry or, or uh, church-related things. Now, incidentally, we were in Nashville the week after the mass shooting at Covenant School. And so we did drive by there and we did have an opportunity to, to stop at the campus. We, we weren't allowed on campus because the... Um, the entrances are, are barricaded and there's a, a, a posted policeman there. But we were able to go up to the memorial at each entrance and uh, particularly one entrance. There's a lot more access. So we went up and just spent some time mourning and praying and, and uh, looking over all the, the flowers and the, the notes that people had left. And so that was pretty heavy. But anyway, needless to say, it has been a long time. It has been too long. This was intended to be a weekly summary of the sermon content that we are teaching through at Shoreline Church and to give you just a uh, a little more content. It's not necessarily a full review of every sermon, but just a little more content where uh, we might go a little bit deeper into some things. So uh, we've been in our study of Genesis and we have been looking at the life of Jacob. And this past Sunday, we were in Genesis 34 in what can only be described as one of the darkest chapters in the life of the people of God, but certainly the darkest chapter, so it would seem, in the life of 
Jacob and his immediate family. We know Jacob had 11 sons at this point. He has one daughter uh, from Leah. Her name is Dinah. And the chapter begins with Dinah venturing in to visit the women of the land. And, and that's all we know. We're not sure why she did that. We, we can have some conjecture on why she was going in. She was about 14 or 15 years old. Uh, so you could argue she's a teenage girl. You could argue she was being rebellious and wanted to see what the women of the land were, were uh, talking about and how they dressed and what were their customs. Uh, maybe just an, an intrigued uh, and curious teen girl. Um, certainly she was the youngest of 11 or uh, of 12 of, and out of that 12, there's 11 older brothers. So maybe she needed to get some, some space and some fresh air because of all of her brothers. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, she ventures into the women of the land, and uh, the very next verse says that Shechem, who's uh, na- the city is named after, he's sort of the city prince. His father seems to run everything. But it says that he sees her, and then he captures her, and then he laid with her and humiliated her. So this was a- an aggressive act of sexual abuse, sexual sin, sexual assault, whatever, however you want to describe that. This is not a consensual love relationship where Dinah wanted to return those affections. And so they found themselves crossing a line that they shouldn't have crossed. Um, and, and just their, their passion for each other was just uh, out of control and, and, and it spilled over. And instead of getting married and making a commitment, they, no, 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 this was, this was uh, an abusive situation. He's capturing her. He's a man of authority. He's a man of, of, uh, renown and notoriety and and power and he he seizes her and he he takes advantage of that the fact that she's this underaged girl who's alone she's a foreign girl uh, and so he takes advantage of his position and her position and he abuses her and so we we looked at the the devastating realities of sexual sin or, or sexual assault sexual abuse yesterday uh, on Sunday um, and we dove into some statistics, which were really frightening. And, and I couldn't believe it just in the research that one in four women and one in six men will have or will be uh, abused in their lifetime. And, and so when you start thinking about it, it's like, this is a huge percentage of our church. And we don't seem to be ministering to anyone in particular. Uh, that has gone through this trauma. We don't seem to have any ministries, or if we do, they're very fringe. Uh, we don't talk about this enough. And, and I've always said, I want to talk about topics as often as the scripture speaks of them. So when we come to a text like Genesis 34, where we read about this uh, sexual sin in the form of, of abuse or assault, I, I want to make sure we take the time to talk about it. Uh, it was very, very enlightening and very, very scary that statistics say 80% of those who are sexually abused are done so by someone they know. So we as parents will often say, you know, stranger danger, stay away from people you don't know because they may hurt, harm you, they may hurt you. But the reality is that's not the case with sexual abuse. This is happening by family members. This is happening by family friends. This is happening by those who babysit and those who maybe even go to the same church or are known by the family. 80%. So the vast majority, only a small minority of sexual abuse takes place with someone that 
uh, you've never seen before and you don't know. And so this is this is a major issue. And, and so we spent some time talking about uh, the importance of Jacob and the brothers coming to Dinah's aid. And what do we see is that both of them overreact or, or underreact. So Jacob underreacts by not really dealing with this head on. He's the the prototypical father who doesn't believe the uh, the victim. He, he actually, he, he doesn't take it far enough. He doesn't actually seem to come to Dinah's defense. In fact, by the end of the chapter, it seems like all he cares about is that his own honor, his own name may look spoiled to the people around him. It's, it's almost as if he cares more about uh, his reputation among people than the sin that's actually taken place in the chapter. And then you have his sons, and his sons seem to overreact. So not only do they uh, step in where he should have stepped in, which sort of was part of the, the ancient Near East culture, the, the brothers, the sons would be the ones that, that really took the initiative and handled these sorts of situations. And that's for good reason. That's understandable. Uh, Jacob is older, so it makes sense. But they overreact, and they go to the extent of not only dealing with Shechem, but they also murder his father, and then they kill every single male in the entire city after humiliating them by making them be circumcised for no reason. They, they did this ruse of, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll become one big family. This will work, but we need you to be circumcised, which was true if they were going to join together as a family. They would have had to be circumcised. We learned that back in Genesis 17 when God established the sign of circumcision with Abraham in his covenant with him. That was a stipulation is that all of the men in your household, either your sons or those who become your slaves, whoever joins with this family, everyone in this household, every male must be circumcised. So that had been clear. And so they would have had to be been circumcised anyway, but the brothers do this in such a way that it leaves all of the men in the city vulnerable. It leaves them in a state of pain and uh, physical recovery. And so on the third day when they are most sore, it says Simeon and Levi go in and they put all of these men to the sword. They killed them all. But but even worse than that, they then plundered them. They stripped them probably naked, took all of their jewelry, their money, their shoes, their clothing. And then it says they took their wives and their children and their flocks, everything they owned in the city and in the field, and they, they plundered them. So this is just an overcorrection. And we talked about how with sexual abuse, uh, murdering the perpetrator does not take away the sting of the offense. Uh, a, a huge act of revenge or vengeance, retaliation, does not, it, it may feel good, but it doesn't undo the horrible nature of the act, the crime, the sin that was committed against the victim. And, and so... Um, we really don't get a, a real insight of how Dina, uh, Dinah's doing. We don't really zoom in and say, how's Dinah doing through all of this? We really just get everyone else's reaction. Shechem, of course, is the abuser. It has this perverse, twisted view of uh, his victim, Dinah. He looks at her, it says, with love, and he spoke tenderly to her, and his soul longed for her. And these are all, uh, I, I use them on Sunday as air quotes. He, he loved her, air quote. Because you cannot put rape and love in the same sentence. You know, you can't say, I 
long for and speak tenderly to someone who I am humiliating and through domination that I'm abusing. It's just a very skewed, sinful, and perverse way of looking at the whole situation, of looking at the act and maybe looking at it as an act of love or beauty or consensual, um, you know, consensus. Like we both are consensual here. We both wanted this. Oh, she wanted it. I know she was saying no over and over and over and she was crying, but, but I think she was just nervous. Just, just these twisted way of looking at the act. And so uh, didn't really address it too much further than that, but there are, there are many people, maybe even you listening to this, who have endured uh, sexual sin committed against you. You were taken advantage of, you were uh, disgraced, you were defrauded. And um, just want to minister to you, just give, give a word of encouragement that um, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This was a mistake. This was a sin. This was uh, a wrong that was perpetrated against you. And I, I just want to encourage you not to, um, you know, and maybe even some of the, the aftermath of that. Someone may have compounded the heaviness and the guilt and the shame of that by somehow heaping blame on you. And I know some commentators do that with Dinah. They actually say, well, Dinah got what was coming to her. She went into the city and she went among the women and that was not smart. And so someone may have said, well, you were, you were letting your guard down. You were getting too close. You, you shouldn't have been in that situation. You shouldn't have been with him. Um, whatever that is, uh, that is not your fault. It is not your fault that someone else sinned sexually against you. I just want to make that clear that the Lord Jesus Christ is a, uh, an example, or he's the perfect fulfillment rather, of the example in the Old Testament of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, there were two goats, and the first goat was slaughtered. The sins of Israel uh, were were basically laid on that goat, and it was slaughtered. It was it was it was killed. It was put to the sword, put to the knife, the dagger, and um, its blood was shed to cover as a propitiation. If we're going to use theological terms, but it is a biblical term, to be a covering, an appeasement of God's wrath, the sins they had committed. But then there's a second goat. And the second goat is where we get the word scapegoat from. And this is where the priest would lay his hands on that goat and he'd confess this, all the sins of Israel. And then he would send the goat out away from the city and it would just wander off. And the idea there is expiation, the, this concept of our sins being removed from us. So the Lord Jesus Christ in his death at Calvary, he in his body, in his death, bears the example of these two goats. Not only is he the one who satisfies the wrath of God, who, who comes and covers our sin and appeases the Father so that we are now brought into reconciliation with him, but he also carries our sins from us. He removes our sins, as the psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west. Often when a woman is raped, the first thing that she desires to do is to take a shower, to, to wash herself, to, to be rid of her filth, rid of her guilt, rid of her shame, rid of the disgrace. And, and that's a picture of what that second goat, of what Christ has done. He has cleansed us. He has removed the, the guilt and the stain of that wicked, heinous sin 
that has been committed against us. And so not only does he forgive us of the sins we've committed, but also the sins that have been committed against us, those things that defile us, those things that cause us to be unclean. He now washes us and he calls us clean. He makes us white as snow. I think that's why it's interesting in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's the forgiveness part. And then what else? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a forgiveness and there's a cleansing. Any of the lepers who were healed by Jesus, they were known as those who were cleansed. They were ones who've been washed, who've been renewed. And that's what Christ has done. So if you've been sinned against sexually, I want you to know that there is hope. You can come to Calvary and your sins can be cleansed. You can be cleansed of your sins and the defilement, the sins, the dirtiness of the acts that have been committed against you. So it was uh, just a, a heavy story, but there's a bigger picture here. There's a bigger, grander idea. And when we zoom in too close, all we see is this heinous act and then the overcorrection and the the passivity of Jacob. And we sort of scratch our head and say, well, what was that about? But when we get to chapter 35, verses 1 through 5, we see that God again reveals himself to Jacob. And this time, Jacob now has action. He's no longer passive. Now he's active. He's leading his home. And he says to his family, put away the foreign gods. Put away the idols. Cleanse yourself. Change your clothes. We're going to ascend to Bethel where God is, where he has revealed himself to me. And it says that when they did that, they, they gave up their jewelry, their earrings. They gave it all up and Jacob buried them under the terebinth tree. I don't know if someone ever dug them up and found them, but they're somewhere in that part of Shechem. There's a tree. And at one point there's a lot of gold jewelry uh, earrings laying there. And so he, he then brings his family and it says that the terror of God or a terror of God fell upon all of the peoples of the area. I think the terror of God that came from the Lord was the news of what happened in Shechem. The people found out, oh, this family here, this wealthy uh, family with all these herds and all these children, wow, they are not to be trifled with. Do not mess with them. Because here's what happened in Shechem. And rather than them all coming against saying, hey, what did you do to our, our that city, to our brother, you know, this, this fellow Hivite, this, this person of Canaan, instead of going after Israel, uh, there's this terror that they, they just avoid. They, they segregate, they separate. And so I believe that, that the unfortunate events that, that occur in Genesis 34 were a part of God's greater sovereign plan to keep the people of Israel not only separate from the nations, but also, in a sense, revered by or feared by the nations. That there'd be a healthy distance so that there wouldn't be the temptation of intermarriage, which is what Hamor and Shechem were suggesting. That there, there would be a healthy distance, which we are called to have as the people of God today. We're called not to conform to the pattern of this world. We're called by 1 John chapter 2 not to love this world or the things in this world. Because the things in the world, the, the desires of the flesh and the eyes, the pride of life, which really all sin can be summarized by. It's either uh, the lust of the flesh, it's the lust of the eyes, it's, the, it's the, the haughtiness of life. Like everything can be summarized by that. He says, those things are not of the Father, but are of the world. 
And if we love those things, agape, then the love of the Father, the, the true love that we want to have for the Father and from the Father, it's not in us. It's robbed. It's, it's minimized. It's stolen away by the, the love of this world. And so even Paul had a companion named Demas, who at the beginning was a great help to Paul, the apostle. But eventually Paul had to say that Demas loved this present world. And he's no longer with us. Demas had a love, a, an agape, a, a drawing to the things of the flesh, to the lust of the eyes, the pride of life that the love of the Father was no longer in him. He, he didn't continue on with Paul. And so that's a temptation for the people of God. There's this gravity that pulls us into wanting to embrace the world and to welcome the world into the church and into our families and into our minds and, and into our hearts. But we must be, as the scripture say, says, be coming out from them and be separate. We're called to be dedicated to God, not completely entrapped with the things of this world. Like the sirens in the Odyssey, we as sailors, we get a little too close. We listen to the beautiful song of the world and then we find ourselves destroyed. And so I think the bigger picture of this chapter is saying we must be on guard. We don't venture close to see the women of the city. We don't venture in uh, to get wrapped up. Now, we still have to do commerce. We still have to uh, abide among. It's not like we're called to be the Benedict option. We're going to like move up to the hills and be segregated completely from this world, isolated uh, and, and distanced. But we, we are called to be separate. So separate, not isolated. Does, does that make sense? We're, we're not called to just be a monastery off in the hills. Okay, once we get this thing figured out, once culture collapses, now we'll go back in. No, we're we're always called to be salt and light, to be a city on a hill that, that beckons people to come in. We're, we're, not, we're not a silo in the country. We're a city on a hill. And so uh, in the midst of that, though, we're called to be among people, but to be set apart, to be as Jesus was, incarnational, God in the flesh. We are, we are to be Christ in the flesh among unbelievers. And, and that's challenging, but there's also uh, like a limit to that. There, there's a there's a wall to that that we we are not going to be yoked t- together in a marriage with an unbeliever. We're not going to be yoked together in a business deal where we are business partners with a uh, a deeply sinful uh, pagan. Uh, that is very very dangerous. If we're yoking ourselves together in marriage or in business, we're not to welcome unbelievers into the membership of the church. We're we're not to yes we are to engage our neighbors, welcome them into our homes, but at a certain point, we say, but the true koinonia we have, right? The, uh, Paul says to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 6, do good to all, right? To all people, but especially to the household of faith. There, there's a next level koinonia or fellowship. There's a next level uh, friendship and, and kinship that we have, not with the people of this world. We don't, we don't just hang out with our single girlfriends who are unbelievers uh, to the exclusion of our Christian sisters who can encourage and admonish us. Eventually, those people will begin to impact us. And so I think the grander story of Genesis 34 is that God's people, not just Dinah, but God's people become defiled when they allow themselves to join with, to make alliances with this world. And that's what the men of Shechem wanted. That's what Hamor, Shechem's father, wanted. They wanted to intermarry so that he could get things from Israel and 
It's the same with this world. They, the, the Keith Green wrote a song to his son. He's like, this world hates you. It, it wants to take you. It wants to capture you, to allure you. And so we, we must be on guard. We must lean into the Lord and to our relationships with our local church, with the members of Christ Church. So anyway, it was a great study. I'm glad to be back here on the Pulpit Podcast. Hopefully uh, new content every Tuesday as we recap the sermon. You can go and check us out on any uh, of the social media platforms. You just look up at the King's Cross Church uh, or you can visit us online, thekingscrosschurch.com. Uh, and we also have a podcast under King's Cross Sermons where you can listen to the sermon content. We'd love to get a five-star review. We'd love to hear uh, some of your feedback. You can always email us. My email is pilgrim at thekingscrosschurch.com. Love to hear your feedback on this podcast as well as sermons. And I will respond to everyone who emails me unless you're a hater and a troll. Then I will or anonymous, I will definitely not read your email and I will send it to junk and flag you. But if you have any uh, constructive, encouraging feedback, love to hear it. So until next time, thanks for listening to the Pulpit Podcast. And I want to encourage you to keep diving into God's Word.